This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast. Welcome to our latest property patter. I'm very pleased to welcome back Lauren Fraser, together with Joseph Green from our real estate disputes team, to talk about the latest developments with residential tenancies. Joe, let's start with you. There have been numerous changes to AST notice periods and the rules on claims for possession of residential property. I can imagine our listeners have become quite confused over the last few years. Um, what's the latest? Where are we now? Well, as part of the pandemic, the government extended the notice periods required for serving a Section 8 or Section 21 notice to six months before reducing it to four months on the 1st of June 2021. Uh, some of the grounds for serving a Section 8 notice required less notice, but I don't propose to get into the detail of that now. Uh, but from the 1st of October, 2021, the notice periods reverted back to the pre-pandemic notice periods, which means for Section 8 notices, all grounds of possession will revert back to the pre-pandemic notice periods, which vary depending on the grounds being relied upon. And for Section 21 notices, the notice period shall revert back to being at least two months notice. There are also new prescribed forms for Section 8 and Section 21 notices, which must be used from the 1st of October 2021. And actually, can I interrupt you there? Because actually some of our listeners also might not know the difference between a Section 8 and a Section 21. So just briefly, what, what are those two types of notices? A Section 8 notice is a sort of largely a fault-based notice if there's reasons or grounds for um, obtaining possession against them, um, perhaps for non-payment of rent or breach of an obligation in a tenancy, whilst the Section 21 notice is a non-fault-based ground which enables a landlord to get possession back of their premises. And they're the ones, aren't they, that tend to be served as you head towards the end of the tenancy and it's coming to an end and the landlord serves it to bring it to an end on the kind of the tenancy agreement expiry date aren't they they're the that's right yes. yeah fine okay well hopefully that just in case people are a bit out of practice with everything <laughs> that's been going on that's a useful refresher sorry um and possession actions yes in terms of possession actions and enforcement the pandemic saw huge backlogs uh, in, in possession claims due to the stay on issuing possession claims and the ban on enforcement of possession orders uh, various requirements were brought in to protect tenants including an obligation on the landlord to serve notice in advance of any possession hearing setting out what knowledge it had of the pandemic's impact on the tenant, and that requirement still applies now. Um, the stays were lifted uh, for issuing possession claims on the 21st of September 2020, and for enforcing possession orders on the 31st of May 2021. And so landlords can now obtain possession orders and instruct court bailiffs to obtain possession. I think the process is still running slower than it used to um, for obvious reasons, um, particularly as court staff continue to be impacted by coronavirus. Um, but interestingly, the government announced at the end of last year that it would be carrying out a possession reform project to look at how best to automate and streamline the possession process from start to finish to make it quicker and more effective for users. And we await the findings of that project with bated breath I'm sure and open arms <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, well, that is very interesting. And um, we'll obviously keep our listeners posted on that. Um, it's also worth saying if people are a bit confused about the various notice periods, etc. Um, obviously, all this sort of information is on our website. So um, you can always look up the latest there as well. And Lauren, it's um, also, of course, there's more changes on the horizon. Um, what other legislative changes are we seeing or are we going to see when it comes to residential property? So there is an awful lot, both sort of happening, but I suppose more being planned in the residential property sector. I mean, we're, we're just basically expecting to see enormous changes, um, both in terms of residential leasehold and the private rented sector over the next few years. My real question about all of this is where we're going to find the parliamentary time to implement everything that's been planned, um, but we'll just have to wait and see what comes to pass. Um, first, I was just going to mention the levelling up white paper that was published on the 2nd of February, which included a whole swathe of announcements about residential property. Um, the government's stated mission on housing in, in that um, white paper was that by 2030, renters will have a secure path to ownership with the number of first time buyers increasing in all areas. And the government also said they've got a stated ambition for the number of non-decent rented homes to have fallen by 50% with the biggest improvements in lowest performing areas. So with that in mind, there is a further white paper planned dealing specifically with the private rented sector in spring 2022, so hopefully not too far off. And we're expecting this to provide more details about ending um, the no fault section 21 notices that, that Joe was just talking about earlier. So basically, landlords would need to have a fault ground um, or some sort of ground um, on which to terminate a tenancy. The white paper is also going to look at improving tenants' rights to redress, exploring proposals for new minimum standards for homes. Um, so this, this is going to involve a consultation on introducing a legally binding decent home standard in the private rented sector um, and also introduce a national landlord register. Um, so all of this is to sort of improve the sort of quality of the, the private rented sector. There were also some other announcements to do with residential property, such as um, proposals for investments in new and existing homes and help to buy, um, encouraging empty homes back into use by applying a premium of 100% homes left empty for a year. Um, they reiterated their commitment to ban leasehold houses. This has been knocking around since about 2017, but nothing has really happened on it. Um, it's interesting we haven't seen, because that does seem like sort of, an, an easy bit, easier bit of legislation, but it's it's yet to come. In terms of this sort of decent home standards, they're looking at um, investigating that across all rented tenures. Um, so a lot on the cards, a lot to deal with, um, and we're looking forward to seeing sort of more details on all on all of these areas. I do sometimes wonder, I have to say, whether the government sort of bites off more than it can chew you know that's a massive lift to achieve you know you do sort of think a bit like you say you know some easy bits in there maybe attack those first rather than trying to bring yeah. in some all singing all dancing cover every type of change to it just seems a lot doesn't it it does seem a lot and I'm really interested to see how um because I, I mean I'm going to go and talk on about the other wider you know um leasehold reforms and I I am Re sitting, sitting and watching and waiting and very interested to see how it's going to be approached because actually that ties in quite nicely with the next thing that I was going to talk about which is um, actually some legislation which has come into force which is the leasehold reform ground rent bill so that is a small section which has been dealt with so um, this bill received royal assent at the beginning of February although it hasn't quite come into force we're waiting for regulations um, to be published to, to, to confirm when it'll actually be implemented and 
obviously, as you probably know, the big change that this Act is introducing is to ban ground rents in new residential long leases, as in leases of more than 21 years, by reducing them to zero. Um, it also applies to retirement homes, but there's a transitional period for those, um, so the Act won't apply to them until the 1st of April 2023 at the earliest. And so, as we were saying, I feel like this is the smallest bite of the leasehold reform agenda that the government was able to take. You know, it's just, it's very self-contained, and it's clear from the debates in Parliament that there was a real eagerness to see some movement in respect of the more wide ranging reforms um, in terms of enfranchisement, right to manage and common hold that was laid out in the Law Commission reports in July 2020. You know, you could see that there was sort of interest into how that, you know, we're all interested to see how it's going to be dealt with, um, because ultimately these are going to represent a fundamental shift in leasehold ownership. And so everyone's dying to see how this is going to be rolled out. What we have seen in terms of those leasehold reforms is that there's recently been a further consultation from the government on a number of the Law Commission's proposals regarding enfranchisement and common hold. And one of the key points is that they've suggested that in mixed use buildings, to raise the threshold of non-residential parts for a building to fall outside the scope of collective enfranchisement and RTA and right to manage from 25 to 50 percent. So basically, if you've got a mixed use building and 50 percent of it is commercial, you would be able to enfranchise now, whereas before, um, if it was above 25 percent, then that wouldn't be possible. Now, this is to meet the government's stated aim of increasing the number of properties which could be enfranchised. And obviously it seems to meet that. But it's 25 percent to 50 percent is quite a significant increase. And so naturally it's going to lead to much more complex buildings being potentially enfranchisable um, so that those leaseholders bringing the claims are going to be responsible for managing these complex buildings. And I just think that's something that needs to be quite carefully thought about. There are a lot more obligations coming down the line on people who manage buildings, particularly with regards to health and safety, which have got some quite significant pits significant penalties if you don't comply with them um, and I, I think that needs to be carefully considered in the round. Another proposal in this consultation is to introduce a mandatory leaseback to landlords in collective enfranchisement claims so that basically leaseholders um, won't have to necessarily um, purchase the whole building. Um, so this is particularly with regards to um, commercial um, premises or potentially premises that aren't let on long leases and that the purpose of this is so that it reduces the price payable for enfranchisement um, and makes it cheaper which is a really nice bonus for leaseholders but it does have the unfortunate effect of forcing a landlord to retain an interest in a building in which they no longer have control which is there's a bit of a, a, a conflict there which again I think requires further consideration. And complexity, as you say, you know, all of this is just creating really complex, you know, buildings are quite complex to manage anyway, you know, when you're talking multiple occupiers. But if you start, you know, I've, I've advised on these sorts of things before where landlords want to acquire a bit and not another bit and whatever. And that's not that easy to run a building in that way. Given the extent of the changes that are being proposed, the scope for unforeseen consequences is massive. <laughs> so it really needs to be carefully thought through. The last thing that, that I was just going to touch on that was mentioned in the consultation was on the common hold side. The consultations were setting out proposals in relation to a really small aspect of common hold concerning the fee payable for a common hold unit information certificate, which is provided on the sale of a common hold unit. Now, given the small number of existing common hold developments and bearing in mind the substantial overhaul of the common hold system that's being proposed, it seems like quite a niche area for the consultation to focus on, but uh, there we have it. 
as I said, there is a lot going on. And um, obviously we're following all of these developments in the residential sector on our res essential residential hub. Um, so please do um, follow that for, for all the latest updates in this area. Absolutely, because I mean, it's impossible to keep on top of otherwise. I do, frankly, I think, you know, all of our listeners, if they haven't already logged on to Essential Residential, it really is a must read um, in terms of trying to keep track of what's going on. I don't know how else you do it, really. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a very useful resource. It's, it's funny, actually, someone told me the other day, and I think this is probably true, that in the last 11 years, we've had 11 housing ministers. And I think this, you know, complete you know frankly dog's dinner of how they're approaching it and and trying to do too much at once and too many changes you know too quickly I, th I think that just reflects that you've just constantly got ministers coming in who don't know what they're doing it's it is it is it is very difficult um but there's yeah as you say there's there's some ambitious plans afoot um so <laughs> oh that's bojo for you he's nothing he's nothing if not ambitious <laughs> Oh dear. So, and as you say, you know, there's this direction of travel from Parliament to increase the protection of leaseholders' rights. I mean, I find it quite interesting that we're seeing this from a Conservative government. Perhaps, you know, a lot of these proposals we've seen, you know, you would expect from a Labour government. Um, uh, so, you know, there's really not much between the two parties now. Uh, but we also saw a similar direction of travel last year in some of the key court decisions, perhaps not surprisingly, that's just a continuation in a way of a trend. But um, Joe, if we think about some of those cases from last year, which ones stand out the most for you? For me, there were two key service charge cases last year, which were Aviva Investors v Williams and the Ken Square case. Uh, I'm not going to cover the Ken Square case today, as uh, Emma, you recently did a very informative webinar on it, uh, and I am... Um, would recommend our listeners uh, register for our surveyors refresher and contact us um, for a link to that. I hasten to say, Joe, I didn't really did the information. Grateful thanks to <laughs> Tanfield Chambers and letting me ask them lots of questions about it. So yes, I agree. Log, log on and hear what they have to say. They were two of the barristers in the case and uh, their insight was very interesting. <laughs> uh, safe to say I will mention that it, it looked at the recoverability of interim service charges from a, a long leaseholder of a residential lease uh, and emphasised the importance of complying with the requirements of the lease. So uh, moving on to Aviva v Williams, uh, in that case the Court of Appeal considered the extent to which a service charge provision in a residential lease was invalidated by section 27A6 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, which provides that an agreement by the tenant of a lease is void insofar as it purports to provide for a determination in a particular manner or on particular evidence. So the relevant provision in the lease contained a requirement for the tenant to pay a fixed percentage of insurance, building services or estate service costs or such part as the landlord may otherwise reasonably determine. And the Court of Appeal reached a decision that the effect of the 1985 Act was that the landlord's discretion in the lease to determine an alternative apportionment was removed and transferred to the tribunal who remained able to determine the same in the event of a dispute. So I think this decision is likely to see an increase uh, in applications by landlords of leases that contain similar provisions, particularly where the landlord considers a set of works 
will only benefit a particular group of leaseholders in a block. So rather than trying to recover it from all of them, it might seek to recover the cost of the works from, from, a, from a smaller number. Well, that sounds like it's another must read. As are all service charge decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Indeed, actually. Yes, surprisingly so. But there's always something in there, isn't there? And we also saw, still on service charges, there were also some interesting decisions last year on consultations. Um, So I think perhaps it's worth running through a few of those highlights for our listeners as well, if you don't mind. Certainly. There were, I think, three important decisions uh, relating to section 20 consultation and dispensation last year although I'm I'm sure some people say there were more but the first is Astor Communities v Chapman where the Court of Appeal considered what conditions could be attached to an order granting dispensation and in that case the notice of intention to carry out works did not expressly refer to proposed balcony asphalt repair works and so the landlord sought dispensation in respect of those. The Court of Appeal confirmed that the tribunal has a wide discretion to grant dispensation on terms which they consider fit and appropriate in their nature and effect. Uh, And so the conditions included an obligation on the landlord to pay the reasonable cost of the expert nominated by the lessees to consider and advise them on the necessity of replacing all the balcony asphalt and also to pay the lessees reasonable costs of the application. Uh, But perhaps more worryingly for landlords, the Court of Appeal confirmed that where one tenant succeeds in showing that they have suffered prejudice because the landlord failed to fully comply with the consultation procedure, dispensation may be granted on the condition that all tenants affected by those works can be compensated. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that all tenants are applicants to that application. The second case it's worth mentioning is number one West India Key, the East Tower Apartments, which we've been tracking since the Upper Tribunal's decision the year before. Uh, and this case considered whether a demand for the purposes of Section 20B1 must be a contractually valid demand, uh, which is served in accordance with the service charge provisions of the lease. Um, Section 20B1 effectively provides that a demand needs to be made within 18 months of the cost being incurred, otherwise uh, the landlord can't recover the cost from the leaseholders. Um, And there was a lot of criticism surrounding the initial decision uh, because it felt like an additional burden had been placed in the landlord that was not envisaged by the Act. But the Court of Appeal agreed with the Upper Tribunal and concluded that a demand for the purposes of Section 20B1 must be a contractually valid demand served in accordance with the service charge provisions of the relevant lease. And so the important takeaway from that is that landlords and managing agents really do need to ensure that they issue contractually valid service charge demands within 18 months of the sums being incurred or where they're prevented from doing so, they serve a Section 20B2 notice on tenants. Otherwise, the 18-month rule will prevent the recovery of those service charges. Uh, And lastly, uh, I was going to talk about Win v Yates, where the landlord consulted under Section 20 in respect of external redecorations. This is a upper tribunal decision um, where 
works were undertaken in summer 2019 to the front of the building, but the contractor uh, that was instructed was not able to complete works to the rear of the building. Um, so the landlord had to instruct new contractors, uh, but no fresh consultation was undertaken. Uh, the upper tribunal held that there was no reason why a fresh consultation was necessary. If the contractor was unable to complete the work, then there is no requirement in the consultation requirements for fresh consultation about the same set of works, even if the price increased. Um, it also mentioned its decision about there may be occasions where the works develop such that they include works which were not consulted on and in those circumstances a fresh consultation probably would be necessary but based on the facts in this case uh, it wasn't yeah it's an interesting decision that one and actually you know quite helpful in some ways isn't it and finally of course we had a supreme court decision in january which gave us some much needed guidance on how uh, rtms rights to manage obviously should operate where the building is located on an estate um should we finish up with that one lauren yes yeah, so it's not often that we see um right to manage issues um troubling the supreme court um but i'm sure that this recent decision is going to provide a lot of relief to property managers who were trying to juggle the issues that had been left in place by a previous decision. It had been previously held in the upper tribunal that where an RTM company exercises the right to manage in relation to a building which forms part of a wider estate, the RTM company acquires the right to manage those parts of the wider estate over which the leaseholders in the building, which is the subject of the right to manage, have rights, as well as just the relevant building itself. So this really has the potential to be a practical nightmare because there are going to be lots of other um, stakeholders in the estate who are going to have um, going to be sharing those rights as they're trying to work out how that operated in practice was really quite difficult. Um, the situation was the result of a previous court appeal case, uh, Gali Unity and Ariadne Road, RTM Company Limited. This is a classic example of the sort of situation of that case um, creating a really, really difficult decision for people to deal with. So neither party was legally represented in the Court of Appeal. And just the, the estate in question was quite small and much less complex than many of the new developments, which have subsequently been affected by the decision. Um, so in that particular case, the Court of Appeal recognised that there was a the potential for duplication of management efforts and potentially conflict between the landlord and the RTM um, and they rather optimistically in my view felt that these could be resolved via an agreement between the landlord and the RTM company which is very sweet. Um, <laughs> sweet and the reason we have a job. Yeah. <laughs> You're probably right. So, so basically the upper tribunal in this case were constrained by that court of appeal decision um, and it, this is basically the first instance of a case being granted permission to leapfrog appeal from the upper tribunal to the Supreme Court because um, it, only the Supreme Court could have overturned um, Garley Unity. And to the relief of many, um, the Supreme Court held that Garley Unity should be overruled and the right to manage does not grant the right to manage shared estate facilities. Um, it is only concerned with the management of the relevant premises together with any physical appurtenant property, um, so physical property over which the occupants of the relevant building have exclusive rights. So there is no duplication of management efforts in this in, in this situation. Um, you know, the Supreme Court pointed out that there would be enormous problems 
and I think there have been enormous problems, if an RTM company's right to manage extends to management of shared estate facilities, um, partly because the landlord or the, man the manager has rights and obligations towards lessees in other parts of the estate um, who've got contractual rights against those entities. And any other interpretation of the RTM legislation would basically involve rewriting the contract of those who've got nothing to do with the RTM claim. You know, why should that RTM company be carrying out services for people on the estate who've got absolutely nothing to do with them. Um, it, it would be a fundamental derogation from grant, which is clearly not contemplated in the legislation. Um, the Supreme Court also pointed out that the, the right to manage is it's automatic, it's fixed. Um, you don't have to prove any fault. You have to fulfill the, the qualification criteria. You have to jump through the sort of prescribed notices. There's no further scrutiny than that. Um, and so the court felt that this called for more rigorous limits and a less generous interpretation of the boundaries of the legislation, um, not least to protect and preserve the interests of other stakeholders in the estate. Um, they don't, I mean, they don't even need to be notified of an RTM um, claim if it's not their building. So why should that RTM company be able to provide those services? It just it, it, it doesn't stack up. So really, the, the good news from this decision is it makes the position for property professionals much clearer. It doesn't rely on two parties who may not be on the best terms reaching an agreement. Um, I should say there will undoubtedly be many freeholders and management companies who have already entered into agreements because they had their option to, but to do that, um, who are probably now trying to extricate themselves. Um, it also, and it's, this is just a product of the legislation, it, it, it obviously leaves a sort of slightly unfortunate situations for RTM companies because they are not wholly independent in terms of managing all of the services that their leaseholders um, have the benefit of. But um, that is just the way that this legislation works on your, your more complex estates. And do you think it might actually encourage more leaseholders to look at RTM? Because I can imagine that previously, when we had the previous decision in place, that might have put off quite a lot of tenants thinking, I don't want to manage anything more than my building. I don't want to do these wider parts. Do you think that might actually encourage people to do more RTM? Potentially, clarity is always helpful. Um, so, so, and I yes, I can completely understand that there would be people who'd be put off of the idea of being beholden to, you know, completely separate people in completely separate buildings on the estate. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, won't it? Well, that has been a very helpful run through, thank you, of what's happening in the residential property world and the further changes we're likely to see from the government. Um, as we've mentioned, the essential residential site on our website is designed to keep you all up to date, dear listeners, um, and uh, it's a one stop shop for all relevant insights as well. Um, as Joe mentioned, you can email any of us to get access to our surveyors refresher area where you'll find helpful guidance notes uh, on other areas of property law and the recording of our recent webinar on the Ken Square decision. So uh, hopefully there's a, a wealth of information if you would like to access it. Um, and in the meantime, take care and thanks for joining us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.